Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 53 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a bank holiday special of a show lined up for you today. Yes indeed there's been a bank holiday here in the UK and yes indeed again this is a four day week as a result and yes indeed here we are serving up another edition of Hypnosis Weekly nonetheless. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with my guest Andrew Parr. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured, offering up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, and also commenting on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest, Andrew Parr. We'll be talking about Andrew's approach to using clean language questions therapeutically within hypnotherapy sessions. Um, Some really illuminating stuff in there. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. If you do enjoy this podcast, then please do give us a favourable rating and even review us uh, over at iTunes. I'll be a BFF if you do. So first of all today is this week's interview. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Andrew Parr, who is our second former punk rock musician in two successive weeks. These these successive weeks. Who'd have thought it, eh? Though I've been aware of Andrew and his work for a number of years, it was only recently that him and I were CC'd into an email together as we're helping to pioneer a project and uh, consulting together on something that I really cannot talk about. So why on earth did I even mention that? I have no idea. I apologise. It's like when people write those really cryptic Facebook posts uh, where they intimate something but don't give any details. Something like, I just made the biggest mistake of my life. Or, um, I'm, I'm not sure I'll recover from what happened today, but thank goodness I have good friends to help me through it. Or, uh, I don't understand why people are so mean. That kind of thing uh, on Facebook. And a friend or two will say, what's up? Or let me know if you need anything. To which the original poster then says, thanks, I'll PM you. I mean, why write it at all if you cannot discuss it publicly? Yeah, so I really ought to simply delete that reference that I made, but I feel like I'm on a roll now. So when Andrew and I were CC'd into that email message together, I leapt on the opportunity and asked him if he'd like to join me on the show, and he did just that. I'm delighted he did, because he shares some really great stuff in the interview and discussion afterwards, and is someone I plan on staying in contact with for sure. So, for now... Get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume. Sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome the one and only Andrew Parr. Andrew, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you, Adam. Hello. Nice to be here. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, 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 how did you how did you get into this field? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you arrived at, at where you are now. Uh, it's quite a story. It goes back um, 
got into this about 25 years ago. So it starts back then. I was working in the engineering business at the time. I was a consultant engineer for Shell yeah. and also for the Ministry of Defence. But I've always had an interest in uh, mind mysteries and that kind of thing ever since I was uh, younger, really. And then around about when I was 18, 19, I happened to see a stage hypnosis show and it just intrigued me. I thought, how the hell do they do that? What? Why? I've always had this kind of need to find out why kind of thing. And that's what mm. first introduced me to it. And I forgot about it, really. Um, and then my life on a bit of a huge roller coaster. Basically, by the time I was 21, both my parents had died through illness within two months of each other. Oh. And it all went a bit kind of crazy for a bit. And yeah. Uh, I was a musician at the time. I was a punk, punk rock guitarist as well. And we all moved to London and went on a, did the London thing and had a lot of fun for quite a few years doing that. But eventually the whole thing just collapsed and crashed. And I was on a self destruct cycle, really, from not resolving all the stuff from what happened, plus some other stuff in my life, you know. And there's a moment where I was sat on the floor of my flat in London above a kebab shop. It was the most grim place <laughs> to live, you know, because I'd left a beautiful home in Bath looking over the canal with swans wandering around outside and here i was just smelling kebabs everywhere <laughs> and it's like what how did it happen how did i get here you know and i had the, one of those moments and this voice very clearly in my head just said find out about hypnosis i don't know where it came from what it was imagination unconscious who knows okay it just said find out about hypnosis and suddenly the, the memory of the stage show and all that stuff came back to me and i thought oh yeah why not okay so there was no internet back then it was dark ages time so i just yeah. picked up the yellow pages and thought, I'll start there, and found out, well, oh, there's these people who do this for a career and a job, and I just called a few numbers and took it from there, really, and that's how it started. So it was real, one of those, yeah, you hit the bottom story, and then uh, start building up from there, and that was about 25 years ago, yeah. and I just got into it from there, really, that's how I got interested. And it's the first thing that actually hooked me more than um, posing around on stage with a guitar did, and I yeah. gradually left that behind and became more into the, the therapy and hypnosis world. Yeah, yeah. And so throughout those years, I'm guessing, you know, as well as your own knowledge developing and as well as, you know, the, the various different directions that your career has gone on um, mm. um, with, with you teaching as well as doing one to one work. Um, 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 tell us, where are you at as far as hypnosis is concerned? You know, how do you how do you explain hypnosis to others? Um, um, do, do you have a, a working definition of it? And perhaps you give us an idea of how you arrived at that. Um, I kind of dread that question, actually. Because yeah, I know, I know. Pretty much all of our guests uh, are really, really dread and, and dislike me asking it. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a great question. But I just, um, if somebody says to me, how do you define hypnosis? The honest answer, the most honest thing I can say is, like, do you know what? I don't really know. You know, mm. I, can, I can give you some descriptions around it. Yes. But the closest thing I can think of is it's like a very, it's a naturally occurring state of mind that we can also seem to induce at will. Mm. But within that, state of mind there's some very useful things we we can do and sometimes we can help people introduce new ideas into their thinking or let go of old ideas and we can maybe uncover some stuff that's been holding them back and but all of this is slightly maybe because there's no guaranteed rules with it and the, I, I quite like the Dave Alman definition of bypassing the critical faculty but even in that kind of situation well, to me it's still there anyway and you can be in a really nice state of hypnosis and still have this critical faculty thing there just analyzing watching observing so yeah. i have a very slippery shoulder kind of <laughs> non-committal <laughs> definition there but um, i think yeah yeah i think that makes a lot of sense to me because you know i, I mean th there is still no universal uh, universally agreed upon definition yeah. so i you know i appreciate your candor yeah it's just usually when, if people, if I'm out somewhere else, someone at dinner party or someone says to me, oh, what's hypnosis? I normally just say, oh, it's just a really natural state of mind that we all can access and you, know, you can do some useful therapy stuff in it. And it usually speeds the process up much more than traditional therapy. So that's the, that's the kind of my elevator pitch for it, should we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so and then if they, if they ask more questions, I'll dig deeper. And if they don't, if they're bored by then, I'll, I'll just drop it and leave it there. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? no one gets bored about hearing about hypnosis <laughs> I mean, except my wife perhaps who has had to endure that for many years um so tell us then throughout throughout the years um i'm, I'm particularly interested in the early years um, mm. um who are some of your your major influences in this field um, what about some of the books some of the authors that taught you the most some of the teachers that have been think, most influential upon yeah you? that makes sense i think i mean i i really loved reading about uh, gil Boyne, you know in america yeah. he was uh, to me, he was just, every time I was doing something, I'd always come back to what he was doing and saying and just check in with it because I think the guy had so much experience and so much knowledge and 
he seemed to really care mm. and he was a bit abrasive and a bit aggressive at times so i i toned it down a bit for my <laughs> english clients we say i couldn't quite do the american way of doing things but i learned so much just from reading transcripts of, of his sessions and so that that was a big influence and yeah. also the um dave Armon as well but I, I just i read his book you know the hypnotherapy book yeah and it seemed it all seemed so easy you know, it never quite was that easy, but I think, as, as I say to Stuart, it's like times have changed a bit and the authority figureness of of uh, people responding to authority figures, some of that has changed as well. So it makes it trickier to do those authoritarian kind of approaches. But just reading the transcripts in those books, Dave Armand and Gilboy, and just, I thought, gosh, there's so much amazing stuff you can do. Uh, it's just incredible. But I think the all-time favorite book was a little book called uh, Miracles on Demand mm. by Charles Tebbets. And I gave my copy away years ago. It's, it's so annoying. They're about three or 400 quid nowadays to get those. <laughs> they really yeah. are. But uh, mine, I just loved it. It was like this little, um, <coughs> excuse me, like a little treasure trove of scripts and, and, and transcripts and that kind of stuff. And um, it was a blue cover, gold writing. And to me, it was like a little, every time I picked it up, I felt excited. And that's what I loved back in the early days. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do like hearing. Um, fellow hypnotherapists saying that they get ex they used to get excited by certain books and certain things. Um, 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 tell me then, th throughout the years um, and throughout your work, what has been one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that, that you've directly witnessed? Um, gosh, there's so many. I think if if you're doing any kind of analytical uncovering thing and you hit some kind of abreactive moment, abreaction. And, and someone is just liberated in that moment from a lifetime of fear, stress, behavior, anxiety, panic, and you see them change in that moment, that, that is, I love seeing those. And the emails the next day, the next week saying, oh, thank you so much. You know, I can do this. I can do that. that that's lovely. Mm. But endless amounts of those. I quite like the text two o'clock in the morning when a guy's been for a sexual problem and he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, he, <laughs> <laughs> and finally he's got it together. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, like there's a, I've had a few photos of babies sent to me where people just couldn't get it together and they have and they said thank you you know so yeah pain, pain relief I remember I was doing a demo for for teaching and a guy came in twisted up could barely walk and an hour later he's walking around the car park we have to go make him sit down again just say <laughs> just take it easy you know just ease off a bit mate you know so yeah. I, I love all those things and they're, they're, they're still they still fascinate me now you know 15,000 times later I still think bloody hell look at that you know it's, yeah it's incredible so yeah yeah I, I I think sometimes um, hypnotherapists need to just like tune in, do a reality check every now and then, because, you know, I, I found myself being quite blasé with clients in the past. Um, and yet later on that day thinking, you know, actually, wow, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that amazing what we did today? Um, <laughs> totally. I, I agree with that. Yeah. You think, yeah, 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 another miracle. Yeah, yeah, okay. What, what's, for <laughs> what's going on? You know? so, and yeah. Just so normal. Yeah. Just, um, yeah. So I totally appreciate what you're saying there, Adam. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I have to remind myself, look, this is really important. This What this person's gone through is really totally life-changing for them. I know you've done it thousands of times, but this person's had a life-changing moment, and I have to remind myself that. Otherwise, like you say, I'll become blasé. You know? Yeah, yeah. Now, um, if you go back all those years um, mm. to when you started out as a hypnotherapist, you, you're kind of exploring the, the idea of being a hypnosis professional, knowing knowing yeah. what you know now, these years later, is there anything you do differently? Um, and if so, what? And is there any advice the person that you are today would give to that younger you uh, that you'd, you'd happily share with, with our listeners? Uh, I think I did the best I could at the time with what was available. So I'm yeah. quite pleased with how I did that because there wasn't so much around at the time. If um, I'm actually struggling to think, actually, uh, I, I think I did quite a good job with myself because I put myself. Actually, this is what I'd say to anybody. Right, I, I think this is what made a difference to me. One of the first things I did was I put myself through a course of treatment, mm. and, and I'm I'm so glad I did that because to me it was part of the training. It was recommended as part of the training. Like, do do the studying, but then become a client yourself. And I did I did ten sessions of quite. Uh, quite involved analytical stuff, going through a lot of emotional things. Mm. But for me, it really taught me w what it's like to be a client. Yeah. So when a client says to me, well, I'm thinking this, I, I can think, yeah, I know exactly what that's like because I've been through that myself. Mm. And and having cleared our own stuff out, I think it makes it so much easier to help somebody else. So if I was giving 
advice to someone else, I'd definitely say, look, just put yourself through as, as much of a clearing out course of treatment as you can. So you're free of your own anxieties, free of as much baggage as you can, because then you won't put it onto others quite so much. It's still hard yeah. not, but, you know. Yeah, and, I get that. And I'm growing great. I, I did that only because I was told that's what you got to do. So I, I just followed them and did it, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think, I think um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people that come into the field having experienced hypnotherapy first, for example, mm. very often they have some sort of, they have this built-in dedication, this built-in belief and this dealt, sort of built-in enthusiasm for yeah. the field that I think serves hypnotherapists very, very well. Um, mm. that, that kind of congruence and that belief that they have invested often, you know, in my experience, sort of is, is, is fed into the client and, uh, and the client perceives that and picks up on that. Mm, I think so, totally. Because there's a certain sense of uh, conviction as well. Because when you're taking clients through things, and sometimes it, it's nice when everything happens easily. Sometimes it's, you know, as I'm sure you know, it takes a bit of effort and it doesn't always work all the time very easily. Yeah. But when, you, when you're trying to support a client and say, look, stick with it, just bear with me, stick with it. When you've got that conviction within yourself that you come out the other side, I think that level of belief can be transmitted to the client. It just gives them that extra bit of confidence that it's worth sticking at it sometimes. And yeah. I think the people who've been through it themselves have that, like you're saying, have that more than those who are just coming at it from a theoretical point of view rather than a practical experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, Andrew, tell me, um, um, what are your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts um, with regards to evidence-based approaches to hypnotherapy? Um, I like the idea of it. I found it really hard to define what it is because... Sure. Um, how do you define it out of interest? You, well, you... I think I think evidence base for, for me. You know, I, I tend to be a bit of a science fascist, as regular mm. listeners uh, will attest to. <laughs> sure. And so, um, 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 for me, it's uh, randomised controlled trials and, and and things according to a more scientific method. However. Mm. Um, I, I also recognise that scientific method doesn't necessarily always translate all that pertinently to the clinical environment. Mm. So I guess for me, evidence-based approaches um, um, is is, is going to be ad adhering to, to what the evidence says and, and, and bending it as much as, or, or at least having some sort of underpinning rationale behind what I do and, and that, that are informing the choices that I make in therapy. Mm, okay, that makes sense. I think f for me, if I was if I was looked at a study that was a like you say a randomised or double blind placebo controlled study that says this technique produces results seventy four percent of the time, then that that that's really hard to translate to every client because there might be one little method that helps a certain type of people on a certain situation, and so part of the skill I think which just comes with time. It's really hard to just teach that is learning which methods. And techniques are appropriate to which client in, in each moment and yeah. so i like the the evidence-based approach but for, for me personally it comes down from my own the evidence i've seen myself yeah and, and what i tend to do is if i if i get a new idea that i come across or read something uh i will just that becomes my excited treatment of the month we say and, and every client will get a dose of that in one way one way or other <laughs> So I can test it out. I'll find a way to sneak it into every session. And after about a month, I'll, I'll settle down and calm down a bit. And then I've got a good feel for what, where it actually does work and where it doesn't, really. Yeah. And yeah. then it's kind of, I don't know if you ever do this, but it just sits at the back of your mind in the toolkit there. And then now and again, a client may say something or present in a certain way and think, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so when that worked really well. So then I might put it out. But it might go back again, you know. I might not use it for another two months or six months or mm. until it just pops into my mind. So mm. I tend to draw on evidence from my personal experience based on, you know, once I've tested it out myself. And I always yeah. try and get a feel for, has that made a difference? Has it worked? How do you feel? Do you feel different? Yeah. That way. So because bedside manner makes such a difference, as you know, in somebody doing a test on a trial of a certain treatment with one practitioner, one set of clients, could, I think could probably get a very different outcome if it was all done in a different way with a different person so it's yeah absolutely. to really nail that down you know i'm science background too so i really like to know um but I, I think i think for example um, um we all know um, um and there is evidence upon evidence study upon study to support for example 
the idea that a good working alliance is going to advance the efficacy of whatever happens in, mm. in that session, you know, regardless of what you do, a good working alliance, a good relationship, a therapeutic relationship is going to going to benefit the outcome of that session. Yeah. And um, of course, that's that, that, that we're always working to develop that within our, within within our consulting rooms and within our therapy rooms. Yet there's there's usually um, a, a, an omission or, a, a, you know, of that, you know, that that won't be included in many clinical trials, for example. And so um, um, I think it I think it is a challenge sometimes to 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 to, to translate, you know, real evidence based findings. And, and, you know, I know there's a lot of hypnotherapists out there who are quite critical of of a really staunch scientific approach. Um, and, and, and I understand what you're saying there. And, and I think certainly there's been a good number of my previous guests on this show mm. that have said something very similar to to yourself which is you know with regards to my own experience you know i have evidence of of knowing how i work and how i do things best and and the kind of things that that, that, that tend to be effective for what kind of people and, and 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 as far as we're concerned you know that that can count as as being responsible and evidence-based in a way mm. Yeah, it's hard to translate that when it's your own personal style, isn't it? How do you replicate that? How do you reproduce that? How do you bottle it and mass produce that? Which is usually what science is trying to do with pills and stuff, you know, try and get the same same result. Yeah, absolutely. It's really hard when it comes down to personality, you know, because so much of it is, as you say, how you connect with the person. Just spotting those little tiny things they may say, a little word someone may say that 90% of people may miss. But if you've if you can just pick up on it and think, oh, my goodness, that, that was really meaningful there. Yeah. And then what you give back to the client can be far more meaningful than if it was just a very generic way of doing things. Yeah. And that, I think, just comes with time and practice and just putting the hours in, really, and, yeah. and, and, and careful listening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you know, experience. Um, one, of the, one of the ironies that I, you know, I often find is that um, uh, when people have many years of experience within this field, it tends to suggest that they were good of what they did because you know it's very difficult to maintain a career if you're if you're not getting results and and, mm. you, and, and you are no good at at doing what you are doing yet of course it's a, it's a double-edged sword because the, the the longer the longer you you continue working within this field being exposed to more clients and working with more people the better equipped the better a therapist you ought to be becoming as mm. well um, um so uh, andrew just to, uh, we're, we're going to talk some more in a short while um, sure. um for now where can people go to learn more about you your work and and your approach and, and and the things that you offer the world uh at the moment my my website for the past 15 years or so 16 years or so is called professional hypnotherapy london just you can type my name in in, in london i'll come up there yeah um I have a training school as well, as you know. You can mention yeah. that or not mention it. It's up to you, Adam. That's training for hypnotherapy.co.uk. And yeah. that's, you know, I never worry about competition because I feel people are drawn to the the person. And I, yeah, yeah, students, yeah. I, what I do, I talk about a funny story when, when I'm teaching because I say, look, many years ago in Greenwich, I set up a clinic with a friend of mine. And he's from a building background. He was South London, spoke a bit bit like this, a bit more like a Cockney kind of guy, but lovely, yeah. lovely guy, really good. And we set up a clinic together. We shared a, a yellow pages of it, same telephone number, just our names in there. And a friend of mine was the practice manager at the time. And he said, he said, I know which client is for which of you the moment they walk in the door. <laughs> he says, because Dave's clients come and say, oh, yeah, come see, uh, come see Dave, point with Dave Thomas there. And, uh, and he says, fine, okay, off you go. And he says, your one's coming and say, hello, I come to see Andrew Parr. You know, when I sit and it's all very much like this, you know, so I'm exaggerating a bit. But yeah, yeah. I just get a feel for which client's coming to see you and which one's somebody else because it's like, it seems weird, but we all seem to draw draw our own pool of clients, I think. Yeah, I think absolutely. I, I will draw my own pool of students, which will be different than your pool of students and that will they'll be slightly suited differently to each of us you know so I, I i agree you know people have a different criteria and um you know i i i'm very much of the opinion so for example i once uh, i was teaching an advanced course to to a bunch of well-seasoned hypnotherapists um mm. on an occasion and one particular lady um i mentioned openly to the class um that she was struggling with her business at that particular time because there were so many hypnotherapists in her town 
and she mm. believed that this was really hampering her her, her ability. And and the, the example that that I gave her and that I offered up was this idea of estate agents very often will set up shop in the same corner of town. Um, and even in the same street as other estate agents, certainly in, in, in bigger or larger, larger towns. And because it makes a lot of sense, because when people are looking for a house, it's much easier for them to go and pop into a bunch of them rather than head out to town to the one particular guy that is estranged or, 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 or is isolated out there in a particular. Unless they've got, you know, unless they've really nailed a particular niche. And I tend to think that, you know, even if there are more hypnotherapists in your locale for example mm. you 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 know there's there's an opportunity for, for 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 the awareness to be advanced there's you know that it's much more likely that rather than actually fighting over clients there's an opportunity to to really stand out from them and to mm. shine and to do and you know and put good business principles and to be excellent at what you do and to to develop a, a very different mindset and you know, I, I, I'm sort of in the same place with regards to hypnotherapy schools. You know, I, I, over the over the years, the the years that I've been training and teaching, um, I've seen many hypnotherapy schools and colleges come and go. If I'm honest, um, and 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 I tend to think the ones that endure and the ones that continue to thrive must be doing something good. So I don't con necessarily continue there. Consider them to be. To be competition, I'm much more of the opinion, as Vidal Sassoon once said, you know, if you look good, we all look good. And, mm. you know, so people out there that are that are, that are maintaining good and, and educating people um, in an effective way, I don't consider them competition whatsoever. You know, I consider them colleagues and peers mm, right. and, uh, and, and people that, that ought to be friends and sharing and helping and supporting one another. Yeah, and no, I like that idea, Adam. That sounds sounds good to me because we're all trying to achieve the same aim in a way, which I think is you know teaching people what we know, passing on that passion, helping others do that, and also make a living out of it ourselves as we do it. You know, so it's just absolutely it's the same same thing really. And yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, we will have a permanent link to um, the websites that you've mentioned under uh, uh, underneath this particular episode page. Okay. Um, um, and um, we will be back uh, for now. Thank you very much, Andrew. We will be back with Andrew Parr in just a few moments time. I really enjoyed that. As I said, we'll be back with Andrew for our professional discussion shortly. On to this week's hypnosis in the news then. This week, I'm citing three recent stories that have found their way into mainstream media. First up, would you look at who's turned up in the Dorset Echo here on the south coast of England? Our very own Tom Bugler. Now, I say our very own because hypnotherapist Thomas Bugler is a recent graduate of my own Anglo-European College of Therapeutic Hypnosis. The article is titled... Hypnotherapist Tom Bugler from Weymouth, who was bullied, is providing free courses to schools and youth groups to boost self-esteem. So having qualified, part of Tom's aim has been to help children and teens to boost their self-esteem. He's teamed up with a martial arts instructor and world champion Muay Thai fighter. The pair of them are offering schools a chance to bring them in and work with the children to help them deal with the effects of bullying. I loved this story and I'm very proud of Tom. Tom and what he's doing. So I just thought I would give a little promotion of that story. Um, second story this week then um, is entitled How I Beat My Insomnia with a Cure from the 1930s, the German self-hypnosis that's making a comeback. So the author of this particular article to feature in the Daily Mail national newspaper, Arifa Akbar, she struggled with insomnia and tried a lot of ways to get herself sleeping, um, including conventional hypnosis. Um, in the article, though, she does dismiss heterohypnosis by stating that she tried hypnosis and to quote her, which did nothing at all. Um, hypnosis is not really something that does something to you. It's not something um, um, that, that, that happens to you. It's something you do, something you actively engage in. And it might be simply that she had hypnosis poorly or incorrectly explained or conceptualized to her. Anyway, that's not central to the article. Um, she writes, 
When I came across a magazine article mentioning AT, a form of self-hypnosis and an apparent fix for insomnia formulated by German psychiatrist Johannes Heinrich Schultz, scepticism kicked in. I took the article to my GP anyway. What harm was there in running it past him? Surprisingly, he didn't laugh me out of his surgery, but referred me to an eight-week course at the Royal London Hospital for Integrated Medicine. This is how I found myself sitting with 11 strangers, memorising a script to focus on our bodies from limb to limb and then our organs like a strange verbal body scan. I was told to repeat the exercise three times a day for 15 minutes each time, ideally in a quiet spot, sitting back on a chair or lying down with my arms and legs flopped. It looked like I was merely resting with my eyes closed, but in my head I was repeating sentences, my right arm is heavy and warm. My solar plexus is warm, my heartbeat is calm and regular, and my neck and shoulders are heavy and warm. The script had to be followed in a certain order and repeated three times. There was nothing more to it than that, other than shaking my arms and hands awake at the end. Dr. Schultz's research found that profound relaxation could be induced by suggestion. Repeating the script would put our bodies into deep relaxation, or so the theory went. And this sounds wonderful, and, and it really is. Autogenic training is self-hypnosis by another name and by another explanation. I shall not rant regarding the description and explanation of a founding member of the British Autogenic Society, because I think the notion of AT taking us into an altered state to quote them, is simply wrong. The author used the technique during the day and then as preparation for sleep in the evenings, and it worked a treat. It worked wonderfully well. Her sleep got better. She began to notice all the other wonderful benefits that come from having consistently deeper and better quality sleep. And it's a great advertisement for the application of self-hypnosis. You know, if people are interested, I think that, 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 that modern self-hypnosis is, is exponentially more sophisticated than autogenic training. Um, um, nonetheless, autogenic training is still a wonderful tool. Finally, um, and our third story this week, I'll read you the title first. Aliens cost me my boyfriend and kids, claims abductee taken after car stopped by UFO. So I'm not going to speak about this article in depth. I'm only going to say that the lady featured in the article, Rosalind Reynolds, used hypnosis to help her recollect the experience of being taken on board an alien ship during an evening drive from Clacton in Essex to Corby in the North Hants. I'll simply give you this brief snippet from the article. I quote, her recollection was induced by hypnosis, during which she transformed from placid and quiet to very distressed. Mr. Mantle wrote, Suddenly, Rosalind sat bolt upright in her chair and screamed, No, I don't want any babies. So concerned were the hypnosis team by Rosalind's distress in trance, they decided to end the session. Quite right, too, in my opinion. You regular listeners know that I believe we need more of these types of stories proliferating the media about this particular application of hypnosis. Don't you think so, too? So, links to these media stories are listed under this week's podcast entry over at the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up... We have this week's professional discussion then. I welcome back Andrew Parr. When I was asking Andrew about a topic to discuss, he advised me that one of the more important aspects of his teaching uh, is whereby he teaches and encourages his students to use clean language questions to uncover and get to the heart, the root of an issue, rather than just glossing over the surface. And I was keen to discuss that with him. We have had clean language supremo Judy Reese on the show previously, but I was keen to hear about how clean language had made its way into the work of someone who is primarily a hypnotherapist, and I was not disappointed. I think you'll enjoy hearing about this application and use of clean language, and that's just what we discuss here. Here is this week's professional discussion with Andrew Parr. Enjoy. <music> So I'm rejoined 
with um, um, Andrew Parr. And um, when I uh, when I send out my messages, um, I'm asking people to come and join me and people that I've had some contact with. Um, one of the things that uh, you know, I ask them about is a topic to to discuss and uh, something to have a little rummage around and an exploration of. And one of the things that um, 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 Andrew likes to impress upon his students, for example, is the use of clean language and, and certain types of questions for certain purposes. Um, Andrew, welcome back. Before we, b before we sort of launch into some of the more complex things that we're just going to discuss in a moment, can, can you just give listeners who, who are perhaps less aware or unaware just an idea of what, what we mean by clean language questions? Okay, so to me, a clean language question, and a lot of this comes from the work of uh, a therapist called David Grove. He he kind of labelled it this way. But a clean language question is a question that really tries to avoid polluting the the, the therapeutic flow that the client is going through. Mm. So by using as many of their own words back to them in your question that you can, as opposed to, say, making an interpretation yourself and then using those words. Mm. Okay, so maybe if I can try and give an example. So somebody says to you and um, says to me, uh, like, okay, there's a young boy who's helping this morning. He's, he's 18 years old and he's an up-and-coming footballer, but he's, he's got a lot of nerves around uh, training sessions. So if I say to him, okay, you, you haven't contacted the manager, so, you know, any reason why not? And he says, well, I get nervous at training sessions. So a clean language question will be, well, what kind of nervous? Simple as that, okay? What kind of nervous? David Grove might say, and what kind of nervous is that nervous at training sessions? That's a bit more formal, but I would, I like to keep it conversational. So what kind of nervous? And he might say, well, uh, I'm afraid I'm not fit enough. Okay, so what kind of afraid not fit enough? Mm. Yeah? Well, and what he said was, afraid not fit enough because I might, I might overdo it and then be, be sick on the pitch. Mm. And that happened to me two years ago. I thought, ah, oh, okay, all right. So within two questions, we've got to possibly a causative incident that's causing more anxiety in, in a game. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so re, re, uh, th th which is why I think, I'm trying to get, that's a quite kind of simple example, but if you just keep it very, very pure to the words the client is saying, somehow it seems that that purity of the flow will, will lead you more to the core of an issue within a client than if you use too many of your own words back to them does that make sense adam that's yeah the, yeah right. yeah absolutely it does um, um so so when we were talking um so when we were when you were suggesting to me um that the clean language type of questions um typically would be would be being used for uncovering and getting to the heart root of an issue this is what you mean yeah that's right my own experience is, is said has taught me that the more i know what the root thought the root fear the root belief is the, the more I can tailor a treatment towards that. If we're doing, whether it's some kind of analytical treatment or some kind of suggestion type treatment, whatever, the more I know what's really going on, the more we can focus on that. So clean language questions to me help me uh, laser focus onto what's really the issue mm. rather than a generic approach, which could be just surface level. So would this be, would this typically be right from the off and, and typically be something you'd use in assessment prior to you... Um, for want of a better expression, you know, electing what kind of therapeutic approach you are going to l later then take? Or, or is it something that will punctuate everything that you do? It's kind of everything I do, really. From the, the moment I open the door, we'll have a, I'll try and do maybe two or three chit-chatty kind of questions just to get them talking about anything completely unrelated to the therapy, yeah. just get them talking something, help people calm down, relax a bit. And but from the moment we we switch over to the therapy side of it, then I'll I'll be on this clean language thing from that moment onwards, right the way through as much as I can. Because for me personally, I've just found that uh, one it builds enormous rapport really quickly. You know, we were, earlier when we were yeah. talking about good rapport with the client and good relationship, it builds that really really fast. I found, and also it just helps the client feel really understood, really listened to. Yeah, and then as I'm hearing what they're saying, then I'm formulating ideas in my mind, thinking, "Well, we could go this way with that. We could do that." As they're gently letting me know more and more layers or levels of what their issue is, you know, because not everyone empties the rucksack. First of all, they keep a little bit stuck at the bottom, as I'm sure you know. Sometimes. Yeah. So I found the more clean language I ask, the it's more difficult for clients to hide, should we say, 
Mm. And I'm quite open with them saying, look, you know, you pay me quite a lot of money here and I'll, I'll, I'm very gentle and kind, but I'm also quite direct. So I try and lay the cards on the table for them as well. If it's too much, I'll back off, obviously. But yeah. So in that way, like, you can pick up on the real subtleties of what they're saying and not let them get away with anything and say, hang on, that, that thing you said just then, what kind of thing is that? And, and really just pick it apart a little bit. And then you find them revealing things to themselves that they didn't even realize, really. Mm. And, and quite often, you know, it depends on the person, but sometimes within three or four minutes, you can get someone being quite emotional, just talking, just, you know, because it's like they're saying things they've never said before. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And once, once you've got that point, then you think, okay, now, what, what, what do we do here? Do we just, do we need to just reframe it a little bit? Do we need to just do this in a visualization or suggestion way? Or do we need to dig a bit deeper because this is really a life issue and this is, hang on, we're talking about loads of childhood stuff they've been through and we need to dig into that to sort it out. So these questions are going through my mind as, as I'm watching them uh, talk, basically. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I, I just came out, I tell you how I learned to this really by accident. I used to be very, very shy when I was younger. And I would, I would avoid speaking as much as I could. So I learned that if I kept asking questions of people, yeah. <laughs> then they would have an interest. They, they'd think I was the most interesting person they'd ever met. Yeah. And, and I'd said virtually nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and uh, the, so, so, um, um, so, so it, it also, this approach also has the qualities of, of being, of, you know, or at least potentially being an intervention and getting therapeutic results as a result of the questions, as well as it just being an uncovering tool. Yeah, totally, absolutely. I mean, exactly as you said there, it's a complete intervention in its own right, and a lot of change occurs within people, often very quickly, sometimes within minutes, just as the result of asking these kind of questions. And yeah. anything we do on top of that is then icing on the cake, to use the cliche, but yeah, as an intervention, it's, it's amazing in itself. And a lot, I think the, the David Grove approach to it is that you just do this as an intervention. You know, this becomes the therapy in a way. Yeah. But I, I like to mix this with everything we learned from hypnotherapy and hypnosis and, and put the two together. But yeah, you're yeah. right. It's, it's a complete intervention in itself, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and so within, within the, the, the actual hypnosis sessions that you do, so, so aside from the sort of conversational components or, or mm. assessment or discussions or reporting back or, or whatever yeah. else that happens in the session within the actual hypnotherapy sessions is there it, it, when, when when someone is hypnotized is mm -hmm. there a place for the use of the clean language within that as well yeah totally absolutely that's pretty much exactly what i do if we're having an interactive session where the client's talking back to me then i will use pretty much identically uh, the, the same identical technique this i would just feed the same words back the same questions and it just seems to help the client stay on on track with the flow of the information they're recovering uh, they're uncovering and re releasing out so I, I tend to use that most of the time unless there's a then an intervention i think okay now we need to do like an interactive visualization or something or help them express something i may go off track then but all the while, where we're just in hypnosis, just uncovering things, I find this method works extremely, extremely powerfully and, and speeds up the whole process as well, but without losing the integrity of, of the results. Mm, mm. I, I love the idea of that um, um, because, you know, I have spoken to a few clean language people in the past. And heck, we've had um, Judy Reese has been a, a guest on the show before, mm. um, but we've never really spoken to it as... as as something I've never really discussed with anybody as something that's that's then used within uh, the context of someone being hypnotized and being asked. And what it really appeals to me about that is that I think there's there's a lot of hypnotherapists out there that kind of, you know, whale music and a crochet blanket adopt <laughs> adopt their hush FM DJ voice and, mm. and, and, and the person just kind of nods nods right off. Whereas I, I think the level of engagement if someone's being asked and, and clean language is being used keeps mm. them there with you. You know, Absolutely, properly, yeah. and 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 that that's that's where I would much prefer them to be. You know, engaged and properly, uh, properly a, an active agent within within what's happening. You know, thinking, engaging, and um, and so on. Yeah, that, I agree with that totally. Because I think, as you said earlier, the, the well music and that kind of thing, you can download an MP3 for that, and you must well do that at home. You know, by yourself. And yeah, exactly. Pay ten quid for it. You know, so. Um, to me, if someone's coming for a therapy session with someone, then it should be very interactive, should be very personal. And there's other, you know, other 
teachings. I know you get a handbook of scripts, and it's like this one. Okay, turn to page forty-five, read that, and that's off you go, and that's it. And th- that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But to me, it's like, well, come on, where's the, where's the personality in it? Where's the where's the real human connection side of it? Yeah. And if I can maybe yeah have page forty-five with a certain script to draw some ideas from if I need to, but it's really tailored to that individual person based on what they told me, usually through some kind of clean questioning. Then I feel we we hit the the heart of a person much much deeper, and yeah. uh, you get much more life changing, more profound uh, moments with people. You get those life changing things rather than oh that was nice and relaxing. You get wow I, I feel you've just changed my life. That, and that's that's what I feel the difference is when you can just dig a little deeper with someone. Yeah, and so I, you know I, I think also you know effective use of questioning demonstrates I think demonstrates expertise and credibility. When um, um, you know whether it's clean language or or, or any any other um, type of questioning, um, mm. for example, you know I, I'm a big lover of Socratic questioning, for example, and mm. um, you know I think the way in which that is used, when it's used, when when those kind of questioning techniques are used well, um, yeah. you know you you can't possibly script that kind of thing because you need to have heard what was said as a precursor to whatever question you're going to be to be asking next, and so I think there is. A degree of skill that um, you know you, you you need to know your stuff and you need to have had some experience with it. I think, and I think when the client perceives that level of credibility, it makes for a very different type of session than when they're just being spoken at. Yeah, I think so. Totally, you're right. Whether it's clean language questioning, Socratic questioning, it, it involves a real active listening and really listening to the tiny, tiny details, as you say, and that. I think it just enhances it to a much deeper level than yeah. um and I, it sounds judgmental when we talk about the other thing I don't mean it that way because a lot of people get benefit from it but yes I think there's to me it's it's about just getting a little deeper connection to, to someone and even a short space of time you know yesterday I was in London guy turned up 40 minutes late he was late getting uh, trains and whatever we had 20 minutes left and uh basically we did 10 10 minutes of just a clean question so I could really understand what it was, get right to the core of it. I had about three or four minutes to do some kind of token induction thing, really, and just five minutes of something feeding back to him based on what he told me. And I was thinking, well, yeah, that was a good start, but we didn't do too much, really. And he sat up and says, wow, man, man, he said that was that was life-changing. I thought, really? Are you serious, mate? <laughs> I kind of smiled smugly, but I thought, really? I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. So yeah. much deeper than I've ever gone before. And I think it was just peeling away a few layers because within that five minute conversation actually he told me about being bullied at school which he'd never told anybody ever in his life you know mm. and so once someone's done that it's like Phew, i'm open and then i yeah. think all the stuff we try and do with the clever suggestibility test and all that i don't i don't bother with that stuff i think if you can peel away someone's defenses touch that person emotionally you don't need all that stuff it's just there and they're open yeah. they're willing so that's that's what I try and. But I'm guessing that needs to be underpinned with a very particular set of skills, such as an ability to develop enough trust and enough enough level of comfort with somebody. Because uh, you know, I'm guessing people that that are less familiar with this approach could could potentially be thinking, well, you know, um, um, that that you know, certain questions of of uncovering, for example, could you know potentially leave someone feeling vulnerable or or or, or feel quite invasive. If there wasn't a good enough supportive therapeutic relationship in place to begin with, yeah, totally. That's yeah, that's a really good point because if you're just probing for the sake of it, yeah, it can feel invasive. So, to me, I think the manner in which it's done and the tone in which it's done is really important as well. Yeah, and and again, I think I said earlier then I often tell people, look, I'm really quite direct, but this is your business, you know, for your benefit. So, yeah. if it's too much, I'll back off. No worries. You know, if you answer any time you don't know answer, no worries at all. But the more I can help you get to the heart of it, then then the, the, the better for you. So I try and lay some foundations that way, so they feel okay with it. But sometimes people say, uh, actually, this, the same guy I was talking about yesterday, he told me he said there's something I I can't say yet, and I said that's fine, no worries. I said when you're ready, absolutely no problem. So, um, so it does happen. Great. And yeah. I think if you if you force that issue, then that's it. You've blown it because you've lost the the respect, lost the trust. So and you've probably become like somebody else, another perpetrator in their life, and it goes from some kind of positive type transference thing to a negative one, and yeah. you lose it. So, so yeah, there's a really good point that you you have to feel safe doing it. And it has to be to me in a very nurturing way, so they yeah. feel supported. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, good point. 
Um, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Like I, I could speak more and more. We're, we're, we're pretty much there with regards to our time. So, um, um, Andrew, Pa, thank you very, very much for coming and being a part of uh, Hypnosis Weekly. There'll be links to Andrew's website. Um, all that remains for me to say, Andrew, Pa, thank you very much. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for taking the time to invite me. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to chat to you as well. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion and equally I thoroughly enjoyed my time uh, speaking with Andrew off air as well. So anyway, on to this week's evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. Consistent with meta-analysis showing beneficial outcomes associated with the use of hypnosis in childbirth. A fact of the week is women that were taught antenatal self-hypnosis used fewer epidurals and required less augmentation during childbirth. The, uh, and this is from a full study um, I'm entitled Antenatal Self-Hypnosis for Labour and Childbirth, a pilot study by Cena, Andrew and McAuliffe, published in the journal Anesthesia and Intensive Care in 2006. Um, so yes, our, our, our fact of the week was that women that were taught antenatal uh, self-hypnosis used fewer epidurals and required less augmentation during childbirth. Full study details can be found over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. Well, that is it for this week's 53rd edition of the Hypnosis Weekly podcast. I do have many more exciting guests that I'll be welcoming to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just Hypnosis Weekly with a hyphen in the middle, .com. My guest next time out is the oldest master NLP trainer in the world. She is the original feisty lady. She is the NLP granny who also refers to herself as a de-hypnotist. The one and only Barbara Stepp over in Chicago will be joining me. We'll be talking about uh, no-fault psychology and other-than-conscious communication, amongst other things. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments and suggestions, questions. Do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website. I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again go to Andrew Parr and of course my thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now.